Good morning, everybody. It is great to see all of you here together in the room, those of you guys who are watching online. And I do want to say it is just great to be back with you. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, I actually missed you. And um, it's uh, really, really cool. My wife and I actually had uh, just the unique privilege and opportunity to help participate in Momentum Youth Conference this past week. And I just want to kind of reiterate what DJ said. Uh, last week, it is really hard to capture even in a video and in words, the impact that something like that has in the life of our students. It was amazing just to see all that God did through Momentum. And you guys, I just want to tell you that there has been an unbelievable amount of uh, really cool things that God is doing in the hearts and the minds of uh, especially students, but even in the, the, in, our, in the life of our church, through camps and conferences and different ministries and ministry initiatives over the course of this summer. And actually, I want to let you know that next week, if you, when you come back next week, I'm actually going to talking about this idea of what it looks like to live a life where Jesus is above all. And so let me just say that if you are newer to grace or you're someone who maybe has been kind of in and out of town, maybe you kind of missed the, the, the consistency of this series, let me just kind of uh, update you or remind you on what it is that we're talking about. So in this series, what we're doing is we're really kind of pursuing a practical, a very practical vision of what does it look like to live a life where Jesus is overall. What does it look like, practically speaking, to live a life in alignment with the truth that Jesus is supreme over all. And we've been saying that our desire is to be very practical about what that looks like in the very kind of nuances of our life. How does this reality impact us? And so each week what we've been doing is we've been talking about different aspects of our life and what it looks like for Jesus to define and to direct those aspects of our life. And so let me just kind of review what we covered just real quick. We talked about a lot of stuff. So we talked about Jesus over our screens and we basically talked about technology and screens. Then we talked about Jesus over my stuff, over my schedule, over my pain, over my regrets, over my anxiety, over my bitterness, over my health, over my sexuality, over my gender, over my singleness, over my marriage, and over my freedoms. Basically, we just said, let's talk very practically what does it look like to live in alignment with Jesus being first in these areas of our life. And so now as we're looking to finish this series, we're actually talking about kind of one final, very important, but also kind of a sensitive topic, a little bit of a touchy topic. We're talking about Jesus over my treasure. And of course, what we mean by that is we're talking specifically about Jesus over our money, Jesus over our treasure, Jesus over our wealth. That's what we're kind of thinking and talking about. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember Pastor Kevin actually started this conversation for us. He did a phenomenal job. If you missed Pastor Kevin's message, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. But what Pastor Kevin did was he actually took us back to some of Jesus's most famous words where Jesus famously said this. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Pastor Kevin kind of showed us in scripture is that Jesus kind of understood that if you really want to understand the true condition of your heart, it's actually pretty easy. All you have to do is follow your money. And if you follow your money, it's going to show you, it's going to reveal to you the priorities and the treasures and the things that you care about the most in your heart. In other words, the Bible's going to say how you deal with your money, how you view your money, how you spend your money, that all of that is almost like a dashboard indicator of what is going on under the hood of your heart. And actually, Pastor Kevin 
gave us a really, really practical challenge. Some of you might remember this. He triple dog dared us. And he said, I triple dog dare you to just track your money, just to actually see where is it going and what does my money reveal about my heart. So hopefully you got a chance to do that. This week, what I want to do is I want to take this conversation and I want to take it a step further. And here's the question that I want to pursue with the rest of the time that we have here today. I want to pursue this question. How does following Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Christ, for those of you who are investigating Jesus, maybe you're thinking about following Jesus, how does following Jesus impact your, my mindset as it relates to my money, my mindset towards money? So last week we talked about how our treasure and our money and our hearts are connected. This week I want to talk about how our treasure and our mind is connected. So if a person is a follower of Christ, how does following Jesus begin to impact the way that I think about my money? How does following Jesus start to impact the way that I view and the way that my, 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 the perspective that I have on my money? That's what we want to start thinking about. Now, the reason we needed an entire sermon to be able to talk about this question is because when you dig into this question, you're going to find out that the answer is actually not that simple. It's not that simple. And the reason is because The Bible actually has a whole lot to say about money. And the reality is, is that if you were to take just one passage of the Bible that talks about money, and you were to take that in isolation to the others, I think it could leave you in some really different places. So let me give give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let's say you were to go to the Bible, and you were to go to a passage like Proverbs 10.22. And there's a lot of passages like this in the Bible. Proverbs 10.22 says this, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth. And there's a lot of verses that say something like this. And so what might happen is if you read a verse like this and you take it in isolation to what the rest of the Bible teaches, you might be tempted to conclude that what that means is that God wants you to be wealthy. That that's actually God's desire for you, is that if you're a wise person, if you're a blessed person, if God is blessing you, that means that you're going to be wealthy. And if you don't have wealth, that you are not blessed. And that if you're really blessed, that means that you're going to be wealthy, and that's what God wants for your life. Now, let me just say that there have been many people, many churches, many pastors who have taken verses like that and have built a whole theology and have basically said that, that God wants you to be wealthy and he wants you to be blessed, and if you don't have financial blessing, then you're not truly blessed by God. However, there's some other verses of the Bible. Some of the other verses might be stuff like this, where Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So according to this verse, it almost appears like Jesus is saying that you shouldn't be wealthy, that it's actually dangerous if you're rich because it could actually keep you from God and from his heart. And so you can see that sometimes when you read these different passages, it can lead you to different conclusions and sometimes even seemingly contradictory places. So why is that? Well, here's what I'm hoping you're gonna see, we're gonna see in our time together. The reason that's the case is because God's desire for you and I is not that we would have a one-dimensional mindset towards our money. Okay, God's, I think what you're gonna see in scripture is God's desire is that we would not simply have a one-dimensional mindset, but instead that we would have a multi-dimensional mindset as it relates to our money. Now, some of you are like, what do you mean by that? So let me see if I can illustrate it as simply as I know how to illustrate it. I want you guys to imagine with me for a moment a trampoline. Okay, so here's a very, very simple picture overhead picture of a trampoline. We all just know how a trampoline works, right? A trampoline functions within a certain framework, right? And within this framework, there's many different points of contact. There's many different springs. So we all know how this works. And all of these springs, when they are held in proper tension, 
right? They, they prop up and they hold up the trampoline canvas so that it can work properly. Now, if you disconnect any one or any you know, variety of these springs, it's going to leave your trampoline out of balance and it's not going to work properly. So you need all of these things working together in proper tension. Now, if you can get that picture in your mind, what I want to argue today, what I'm hoping to show you today in the Bible, is I believe that when it comes to a biblical money mindset, that there's not just one principle. There's actually several principles that need to be held in equal tension. You see, I think, I think honestly, sometimes you and I, I think what we like sometimes is we like rules, we like formulas, we like it when things are black and white, just tell me what to do and I'll do that. But I think honestly, the Bible's not gonna give that to us. I think instead what the Bible is gonna present to us, it's gonna present complementary principles that help hold up and help kind of keep a biblical money mindset. So here's what I wanna do with the rest of our time that we have together. I wanna talk through seven principles, seven biblical principles that I think hold up, that prop up a biblical money mindset. Any one of these principles taken in isolation will leave you unbalanced and will leave you in a place where you don't have a proper, I think a proper kind of mentality as it relates to what scripture says. So we need all seven of them. All right, so that's what we're gonna do. So let's just go ahead and start. Now, I wanna tell you that as we go through these seven principles, um, because we're looking at seven of them, we're actually gonna be looking at a lot of different passages of scripture. So we're gonna be jumping around a lot in the Bible, so I'll put the verses on the screen. I want you to know that if you've been around grace, you know that's not what we typically do. Uh, Typically, what I like to do is go to one passage and kind of walk us through verse by verse. But because I'm trying to give us a holistic picture of what the Bible teaches, we're gonna be looking at a, a bunch of different passages of the Bible. So here's principle number one, okay? Principle number one, number one is, the principle number one is this. God owns it all. All right, I think this is absolutely foundational. And I believe that as simple as this sounds, it is the starting place of a biblical perspective of our treasure and our money. God owns it all. You guys, this principle is seen over and over again in the Bible. There are an unbelievable amount of verses that really kind of describe this reality. But let me just give you a sample, a sample of some of the passages. So Psalm 24 says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Haggai 2.8 says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Psalm 50 famously says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So what are these verses all saying? Well, they're, they're just giving us this very simple principle that is that God is the one who owns it all. God is the one who owns it all. Everything that we have is a gift from God. It's on loan from God. God is the one who owns it all. Now, as simple as that sounds, and I know it sounds really simple, when you actually stop and do the math on what that truly means, this is an absolutely life-transforming principle. Because what it means that God owns it all is it means this. It means that you and I don't own anything. It means that we really don't own anything. That God is the owner, which means that what? It means that we are the managers. We are the stewards. We have been entrusted with something that is not entirely ours. I think that's, that's the first thing that it helps us to see. You guys, I think that when we get a hold of this perspective, when we start to see this, I think what it does is it starts to change the way that we think about our money. So just a real simple illustration, here's a dollar bill. If I believe that I'm the owner of this dollar bill, if I believe I'm the owner of my money, I'm going to approach this dollar bill with a certain mindset, right? So there's a certain, there's a certain kind of, I mean, there's a certain set of questions I'm gonna ask myself as I view this dollar. So I'm gonna ask questions like this, what do I want to do 
with this dollar? I'm going to ask questions like, what are my desires? What are my priorities? What are my goals? And how can I use this to advance or achieve or pursue those things? Now, it's a very different mentality. It's a totally different mindset shift when I start to recognize this is not mine. This actually isn't mine. Someone's allowing me to use, I'm a manager of this. Well, if that's, the, if that's my perspective, if I realize I am a steward, I'm gonna ask a different set of questions. So now I'm gonna ask questions like this. What does the owner desire that I do with this? What are his goals? What are his priorities? And how can I be faithful to do the things that the owner desires for me to do. So as simple as it sounds, this is a foundational principle. God owns it all. So practically speaking, if we believe that that's true, for those of us who follow Jesus, what is a practical step that we could take in light of this principle? Because I think here's a very practical step. I think what that means is that for those of us who follow Jesus, we should seek the owner's heart in his word so we should get to know our owner. What does he care about? What are his priorities? What are his goals? And I think the other thing is that we should, we should seek the owner's will through prayer. So, so literally and very practically, I think what that means is it means that we should pray through our purchases. It means that if we're about to make a big purchase, I think that we should literally pray about it. God, what do you want me to do? Should I make this purchase? These are your resources. I think it means we should pray over our budget. And we should pray at, like literally and practically. I think it means that we should do those things. So principle number one, very simple, but very important completely foundational. God owns it all. God owns it all. Which leads into principle number two. Principle number two is this. Faith and finances are inseparably linked. So the Bible is going to tell us this, that our faith, that your faith, that my faith, and our finances, there is an inseparable link between these two things. You know, I don't know if you guys know this. The Bible teaches, and if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard this. The Bible teaches on money um, a breathtaking amount of, uh, amount of times. And so um, get this, this is kind of crazy to me. Did you guys know there's approximately 2,300 verses, just over 2,300 verses about money and money management? Jesus especially teaches on, do you guys know that, that 15% of everything that Jesus said is about money? Jesus taught more about money than he did heaven, than he did hell, and they did about prayer. Uh, did you know that two-thirds of Jesus's parables involve money in some way or another. Why is that? Why is it that Jesus and the biblical authors speak so often about money? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because there is an inseparable link between our faith and between our finances. Uh, Randy Alcorn, is a, he's a, um, an author. He wrote a phenomenal book called The Treasure Principle. And I'm actually gonna quote from him a couple more times in this message. But he actually pointed something out I thought was really fascinating. Randy Alcorn was talking about a passage in the Bible in Luke chapter three. And I'll read this to you, but but let me just tell you what's happening. So John the Baptist, some of you guys might know about him. He was the one who kind of paved the way for Jesus. John the Baptist was talking about the importance of repentance and baptism. He was saying you should repent and be baptized. And so people were coming up to him and they they were undergoing a spiritual transformation and they wanted to repent and be baptized. And they were asking John, how do we, what should we do in light of this spiritual transformation that's happening inside of us? And I want you to notice what John the Baptist says. So what should we do, the crowd asked. And John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has, who has food should do the same. And then some tax collectors came to John the Baptist wanting to be baptized. You guys were tax collectors. So the tax collectors came up. Teacher, they said, what should we do? And John the Baptist said, well, don't, t- don't collect any more than you're required to. 
is what he said. And then soldiers came up to John the Baptist. They said, what should we do? And then John the Baptist said, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Now, do you notice in all three instances, John the Baptist's response deals with money and possessions. Now, here's what Randy Alcorn says. I think this is so insightful. Randy Alcorn says this in his book. Each answer relates to money and possessions. But no one asked John about that. They asked what they should do to demonstrate the fruit of spiritual transformation. So why didn't John talk about other things? Here's why. Because our approach to money and possessions isn't just important, it's central to our spiritual lives. It's of such high priority to God that John the Baptist couldn't talk about spirituality without talking about how to handle our money and our possessions. You guys, you're gonna see this. I could give you so many examples, but in the Bible, when a person undergoes a spiritual transformation, one of the first indications that that has taken place is that the way that they view money and possessions changes. You see this with Zacchaeus, who after an encounter with Jesus gives away half of his wealth to the poor and pays back everything. You see this with in Acts chapter two, when, when a bunch of people come to know Jesus, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're told immediately after about this outpouring of generosity that happens in their life. This is the same thing that you see in the Macedonian church. And second, I just give you a ton of examples of this. The point is that our faith and our finances are inseparably tied together. So in light of this principle then, what, 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 what does it mean? Or what would be a practical step for those of us who follow Jesus in light of this principle? Because I think a practical step is this. I think a very practical step is in light of this principle, because our faith and our finances are tied together, those who follow Christ should practice what we call 4P giving. 4P giving. Now, some of you are like, what is 4P giving? Well, first off, it's prayerful. God owns it all. It's prayerful, but then it's priority, meaning what? It's first. It's what I do first with my finances. It's what I do first. It's percentage. It's a determined amount that it was decided beforehand. It's, it's, it's a, I, I have decided ahead of time, not afterward. And it's something that's persistent. It's ongoing. 4P giving. Now, some of you might be thinking, you might be hearing that, you might be thinking, so where, where do you get that? Like, where do you find that idea in the Bible of 4P giving? Well, let me just tell you, there's a, there's a few verses that kind of you need to kind of take together to sort of come, come to this, to the idea of 4P giving. One of the first is in Matthew 6. So this is what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He said, seek first, seek first, what's that mean? Priority, seek first the kingdom, God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Now you need to keep in mind, these are some famous words that Jesus said. But the context in which Jesus spoke these words, if you actually read Matthew 6 where he says this, he's talking about money. Jesus is talking about money and possessions. And in light of that conversation, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. So what's that mean? Priority. I think that means priority. I think this is the same heart that you see behind the Old Testament commandment that God gave to the Israelites. Some of you may know this. In the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites to give something that they call, we call a tithe. And basically what God said to his people was he said, I want you to give 10%. That's what tithe means. And God said, I want you to give 10% of your crops, 10% of your herds, and I want you to give that to me first. And I want you to, I want you to bring to me your best. Is what God, bring me your first and bring me your best. Now, I think that when we hear that, that causes some of us to ask a question. When you think about percentage, priority, persistent and prayerful giving, some of us might be thinking, but wait a minute, I thought you said that God already owns it all. 
So if God owns it all, why, do we, why would we give him? He doesn't need anything from us. So why would we give to the things of God? And I'll be honest with you guys. I just gotta be honest. As I was thinking about this this week, I don't actually really love the word give. I don't, I, don't, I don't know a better word, but I don't really love that word. I don't like the idea that we give something to God. And why don't I like that idea? Because of principle number one, because God owns it all. I think maybe a better word, if I could pick it, would be bring. I think we bring. So here's a, here's a simple illustration. Let's say that I was to ask you this week, I was to say, hey, I, I, I need you to do me a favor. Can you do me a big favor? I said, I need to borrow your truck, all right? And let's say you were kind enough, and let's say you had a truck, and let's say you were kind enough, and you said, sure, you can borrow my truck. And so let's say that three days later, I came back to you, and I had this little gift. It was all wrapped up for you, a little box, right? I came back to you, and you're like, oh, that's nice. He's saying thank you for, for, for letting me. And I came back. I said, hey, I have a gift for you. I wanted to give you something. I wanted to give you. And you opened up the box, and in the box were the keys to your truck. All right, now what are you going to do? You're going to be like, uh, thanks. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, I just wanted to give that to you. You'd be like, dude, you don't give me my truck. You bring me my truck. It's already mine. And you guys, the truth is we don't give anything to God. We don't. We bring things to God. Now, here's the question then. Why is it important for a follower of Jesus to bring to God first and best? Why is it important to to bring to God percentage priority? Here's what it is, you guys. The reason it's important is because this is a way to both express and to build my faith. Because our faith and our finances are inseparably linked. I just kind of tell you my own story. I actually remember the first time that I heard this principle, the principle of percentage and priority giving. I remember the first time I ever heard it taught. So I came to know Jesus. I started following Jesus when I was 17 years old. When I was 19 years old, I heard a sermon from a very trusted mentor in my life. And he was talking about this idea of percentage and persistent giving. And I remember I heard it and it was the first time I ever heard it. I'll be honest with you, Prior to that, I hadn't really given much. Like, it wasn't a thought. I remember I, I was the guy who would go to church, and they would pass around the baskets or whatever. We don't really do that here, but they pass around the offering plate. And I remember I would be the guy who would, like, if I had spare change in my pocket, I would, like, throw it in there or whatever. And this was the first time I heard someone talk about having a plan and, and doing it consistently. And I remember that there was a couple of emotions that I was experiencing when I heard that sermon. One of the first uh, emotions that I was experiencing, I remember I was scared. I was scared. And as he was talking about this, I remember thinking like, I can't, I couldn't, I can't do that. Like, I don't know if I'll be able to, I'm a college, I'm 19 years old. I'm a, I don't have a consistent job and I don't have job security. And I, I don't know if I can do that. So I was scared. But then I remember having a second emotion and it was honestly this, I was excited. Because I remember thinking like, what if I did it? Like, what if I actually did that? And I think I realized in that moment for the first time, that our faith and our finances are inseparably linked. They're completely tied together. And and I think that this is a principle that we're gonna see throughout scripture. So principle number two, faith and finances are inseparably linked. Here's principle number three. Principle number three is this. God wants me to be a wise, faithful, and responsible steward. So the Bible's gonna tell us a bunch of things about money. God owns it all. Our faith and our finances are tied together. The Bible's also gonna say that what God entrusts to us, he wants us to be wise and faithful and responsible with. Uh, probably the best place to go on this principle is the book of Proverbs. Uh, some of you guys uh, maybe are, are familiar with the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is all about wisdom. The whole book is about wisdom. So it's probably not surprising that one of the topics Proverbs talks about the most is money. 
talks a lot about money. Let me just give you a quick sample of some of the verses that you're going to see in Proverbs. So Proverbs is going to say stuff like this. The crown of the wise is their wealth. So that if you're someone who's really wise, that sometimes, that oftentimes the result of that is wealth. It's going to say this. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. What's that talking about? That's talking about investing. So that's talking about. What about this one? Proverbs 13, 11, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. What's that talking about? Savings. It's talking about having a financial plan. What about this one? Proverbs 22, 7, the borrower is the slave to the lender. It's talking about debt. The Bible is going to warn about the dangers of debt often, about consumer debt and the dangers that come with it. Proverbs 6, 6 to 8, go to the ant, oh sluggard. I love that verse, by the way. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. And consider her ways. She saves her bread in the summer and she gathers her food in the harvest. What's that talking about? He's talking about having an emergency fund. He's talking about not being lazy, about working hard, about planning ahead, about predicting that potentially something might happen and being prepared for that. You guys, Proverbs is gonna tell us, this is so important. Proverbs is gonna tell us that making a budget, saving, not taking on debt, preparing for the future and for unexpected events, creating financial margin, working and providing for your family. These things are important and they're wise. And listen, they are honoring to God. They're honoring to God. I think sometimes when we think about stuff like that, like making a budget or investing, I think for some of us, we feel like that's not, those things aren't very spiritual. Like we're at church. We should talk about spiritual things, right? So let's talk about the Trinity, or let's talk about atonement, or let's talk about, and sure, those things are spiritual, but listen, the truth is, the Bible's gonna tell us that these things are not only spiritual, budgeting and saving, but they're actually a critical part of being obedient to God in this area of our life, that God desires these things for us. So, and you guys, I just wanna say that I think that the wisdom that we see in the book of Proverbs, I think you could build a pretty good case that we are actually, as a society, in desperate need of the wisdom the Bible has to say about these things. Just think about this, you guys. In our country, did you know this today in America, the average household spends 101% of their income. It's the average household. Did you know the average household in America has eight credit cards? And the average adult, so average person, adult, has $7,000 of credit card debt. 90% of adults don't have a budget. 30% of adults have zero savings. It's probably no surprise to us then that money is the number one cause of divorce in our country. Can I tell you, I think one of the reasons God wants us to be wise and faithful stewards with the money that he's given us is partly because he wants us to be good stewards. I think part of it is just because he loves us a lot and he doesn't want to see us completely destroy ourselves in this area of our life. So what would be a practical outplay of this principle? You guys, I think here's a very practical step. In light of the fact that God wants us to be wise and faithful and responsible, I think that it'd be important if you haven't done this to create a financial plan and a budget based upon biblical wisdom. Like it's actually a really important step. Some of you guys have done something like this before, but there's incredible courses and classes that exist. Things like maybe you've heard of the Financial Peace University or maybe you've heard of the Ron Blue Institute or maybe you've heard of Crown Financial. You've taken something like that where they basically take biblical principles about money and then translate that into how to make a budget and how to think about investing. And can I just tell you guys, I just, again, I'll give you my own story. My wife and I, we actually were very, very fortunate to be able to go through a class like that before we got married. And I remember we sat down with some teachers and they kind of walked us through some really important principles, things like percentage giving, things like living on a certain, a determined percentage of our income. 
uh, things like saving and investing and, and things like um, avoiding consumer debt at all costs. And can I just tell you guys, I would not have thought of those principles on my own. I wouldn't have. I needed the wisdom of other people who were able to walk that through with me. And I'm so grateful for it. 20 years later, I'm so grateful for it. And so a practical next step for you might be to do something like that. And you guys, can I just tell you, I'm actually super, super excited. This fall, this fall, we are actually offering a brand new equipping division class. The name of the class is called Money, Wealth, and Eternity. And this class is an eight-week course that's designed to do exactly what I just said. It's to help you gain God's perspective on money, but then also do things like build a budget and figure out something like questions about planning and investing and those kind of things. You can register for this class if you go to our homepage, the Grace Church homepage. Scroll down just a little bit on our homepage. You'll see the equipping division. If you click on learn more, you can register for that class, eight weeks. You guys, it's for you and it's free and we want you to take that. And I just wanna say that if you're a person who has never built a budget, if you're a person who has never went through that, plan, that process before, this is the right thing for you to do. It'll be a phenomenal class for you to get connected to. Especially, I just, it's, it's for everybody. It's for everybody. But can I just say, man, if you're a young adult or if you're a, uh, about to be married or a newly married or if you're someone who maybe has some financial patterns in your life that you really want, this is a phenomenal resource that's there to equip you. All right, so you can register for that. Registration is open today. It's already open, so you can jump in. It starts in September. And that leads to principle number four. Okay, remember, we've got to have all, all these principles we have to hold in intention. Here's principle number four. Principle number four is that God wants me to enjoy his provision. All right, this is a very important principle. So yeah, God owns it all. Absolutely true. My faith and my finances are completely connected, inseparable. True. God wants me to be wise and he wants to be responsible. True. And then here's the next thing. God also wants us to enjoy what he has provided. He wants us to enjoy it. You guys, I love this principle. I love this principle. Can I just read to you what scripture says? This is what the apostle Paul says to his protege, Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our, say it with me, enjoyment. It's a good word. It's a good word. You see what Paul just says to Timothy? He says this. He says, listen, people shouldn't put their hope in their money that's not, you guys know, that's not a good place to put your hope. If you have money, if you have wealth, don't be arrogant about it. Don't be cocky if you have a lot of money. But look what he says. He says, but you should enjoy. If God has provided for you, then one of the things he desires for you is he wants you to enjoy it. You guys, I think that this principle, this principle is such an important one because it can sometimes liberate us from forms of false guilt that sometimes come when we have conversations about money. The book of Ecclesiastes actually says something similar. Uh, some of you guys maybe know King Solomon was maybe one of the richest men on earth, at least in his time. And he warns about the dangers of wealth, but here's what Solomon also says. He says, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept it a lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift from God. So you see what scripture is gonna say? It's gonna say that, listen, enjoyment is actually a way that you can worship. And so listen, we, we don't worship the gift. We don't worship the gift, but we worship the gift giver. We worship the gift giver. So practically speaking, you might be saying, okay, so what would be a practical step or a practical expression of this principle? Well, you guys think it'd be this. I think, you ready for it? Here it is. I think a practical step is that you should splurge occasionally. I don't know how many pastors you've ever had tell you, say, say that to you before. 
I think you should splurge occasionally. Now, now, hear me correctly. I'm not saying that you should live an indulgent life. I'm not saying you should spend money you don't have. You have to hold this principle in tension to the other principles. But I do think what it means is this, is it means that you guys, God has given us things to enjoy. So what does that mean? I think here's a practical thing. I think every once in a while, you should go to a really nice restaurant. Go on a date night. Go out with some friends. Go to a really nice restaurant and order a blue cheese crusted filet mignon. (laughs) And with every bite, praise the Lord of heaven and earth that he has given you taste buds. Because it could be a worshipful thing to enjoy. You know what I think it means? I think it means if you're able, and I know different life circumstances, you're not always able, but if you're able, I think sometimes it means taking a nice vacation, enjoying God's creation outside of Northeast Ohio, seeing, seeing other parts of, I think it means this, I think what it means is sometimes doing certain things to make memories with the people that you love, with the children that you care about. You know, I think sometimes we're so concerned about what we're gonna leave our kids financially when quite honestly, I think the most impactful thing that we can leave our kids is memories and relationship and those kind of things. I think what it means is, I think it means sometimes, every once in a while, it means that maybe you should, every once in a while, just every once in a while, maybe you should just buy that $25 Mocha Loca, whatever it is you get from Starbucks. I don't know how much it costs or what it's called, but you know what I mean? I think it's okay every once in a while to splurge. So that would be principle number four. We go to principle number five. Let me just check in. How are you guys doing? Everyone doing okay? All right, a lot of principles. All right, let's keep going. Principle number five is this. Riches can trap, deceive, and harm me. Now, again, this is gonna sound like I'm talking out of the other side of my mouth from what I just said, but this is why we have to hold these things in tension. The Bible's gonna tell us that, yes, we should enjoy God's provision. God owns it all. He wants us to steward it. Our faith is connected to it. He wants us to enjoy it. But the scripture is also going to say there is a real danger that is attached to riches and wealth and money. There's a danger. The Bible is very clear about this. So let me just show you what 1 Timothy says. Here's what Paul says. Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a very, very, that, that is worth memorizing, that verse. A lot of us are trying to pursue a fulfilled life, an abundant life. Right here is God math. Here's the equation. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. What is godliness? It means living a life that's honoring to God. What is contentment? It means that I'm satisfied with what I have. He says, if you have those things, you have abundance. You have great gain. He says, because we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it, but if we have food and clothing, we're gonna be content with that. Now look what he goes on to say next. He says, those who want to get rich fall into a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and they pierce themselves with many griefs. These are some pretty serious words. You see what he says? He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. But look what he says next. He says, but if you wanna get rich and if you love money and if you're eager for more of it, he goes on and he says this. He says, it's a trap that can ruin and destroy you. There's a lot of people who have left the faith pursuing those things and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. And the words he uses here are so strong. The apostle Paul says, if your desire is for more money, that you're not content, that you love money, that you're all, it's all you're thinking about, he says, listen, be careful because it's a trap. And I love the word trap. The word trap in the Greek literally is a device used to catch animals, to trap or to snare. It's that which causes one to be suddenly endangered or unexpectedly brought under control 
of a hostile force. That makes you ask the question, what is this hostile force that's trying to trap us? If, if what Paul is saying is there's a dangerous trap and there's a hostile force that's, that's endangering you, trying to entrap you, the question is, what is this formidable force that's trying to trap us? And you guys, I think Jesus actually answers it. I think Jesus actually tells us. Here's what Jesus says in Luke 12. Jesus said, watch out, be careful, be on guard. It's a trap. What is it against all kinds of greed? Greed, greed. The word greed is the word pleonexia, which literally means the insatiable desire for more. What's gonna make you happy? Just a little more. If I just had a, a little more income, if I just had a little more square footage, then if I just had that second house, if I just had uh, uh, the better version, the upgrade, if I just had, then I would be, and the Bible's gonna say, watch out, it's a trap. You guys, how many times have we, how many times do we have to hear the story of people who have pursued a life of more and 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 eventually got to the end of their life or got to the apex of their success and after achieving all they wanted to achieve, they looked back at the rest of us and said, it's a trap. How many times do we have to hear that story? I mean, I can just give you, I'll just give you, I'm not gonna read all these, but you guys, this is just quote after quote after quote from people like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and Carnegie and Henry Ford and Jim Carrey and Marcus Persons, the guy who invented Minecraft and sold it for $2 billion. And what are all these guys saying? They're saying the same stuff. They're saying it's a trap. They're saying there's no pleasure in it. I'm not happy about it, right? I was happier when I was a mechanic is what Henry Ford said right? It's not the answer. I've never felt more isolated. And all these guys are saying, we pursued it and we chased it and we got it and it's a trap. How many times have we heard about people who won the lottery and then came back and said, oh, it's the worst thing that ever happened to me. And you know what's crazy, you guys? I've heard this story time and time again, but you know what's crazy? And maybe this is just me. I'm just confessing to you. Somewhere inside of my heart, I still think to myself, it's a trap. Yeah, it's a trap. But I kind of want to find out. Like, I'll try, okay, I'll try it. Let's see if it, I mean, come on. How many of us are still convinced? And I'll be the first one to raise my hand. How many of us are still convinced that if our standard of living increased, that our joy in life would go with it? And yet the scripture's gonna say, and experience is gonna say, it's a trap. It's a trap, it's a trap. So practically speaking, how do we keep ourselves from this trap? How do we keep ourselves from it? Well, I guess I'll give you one practical step. I just think this is a good one. Tell yourself no sometimes. Maybe at least just once a day, tell yourself no. I had a guy last night after services. He said, I like that principle. I'm gonna tell myself no to work on Monday. And I said, not what I'm saying, not the point. I think what it means, you guys, is it means that it's okay to just sometimes just say, you know what? I want a new car. I don't need one. So you know what? Because godliness plus contentment is great gain, no. I don't need, and yeah, I should enjoy things. So remember, we gotta keep these in tension. Yeah, sometimes enjoy it, sometimes don't. Sometimes say no. I think that's an important principle. That leads me to the next principle, principle number six. So we've got two more, six and seven. Principle number six, temporary treasure. You guys, this one is mind-boggling to me, what the scripture says. Temporary treasure can be used for eternal purposes. Now, this just absolutely blows my mind. The Bible's actually gonna teach, you guys have probably heard this before, but the Bible's gonna teach us 
that we can actually use our temporary treasure in such a way that it can be leveraged for eternal purposes and for eternal reward. Here's what all of us know. Every single one of us in this room know this. Our money, our possessions, we can take none of it with us. We can take none of it with us. I love what Psalm, what the Psalm says in Psalm 49. Those who are wise must finally die. Just like the foolish and the senseless, leaving all their wealth behind. This is a really insightful verse. Do you guys see what this is saying? You could be a person who's the wisest with your money. You could be a person who did everything right, who is financially responsible, who saved up your retirement, made all your right decisions. Or you could be a person who was a total fool with your money, wasted it, squandered it, spent it on stuff that whatever. But here's the thing that, here's the common denominator with all of us. We all die and we take none of it with us. And yet Jesus is gonna tell us something remarkable. Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, Kevin preached on this last week, don't store up for yourselves treasures on heaven where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It doesn't last. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Or sorry, I'm sorry, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. That's what I meant to say. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What's Jesus saying? He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because it's evil? No. Because it's temporary. Because it doesn't last. He says, instead, store for yourself something that will last. Because I love what Randy Alcorn says. Jesus takes the profound truth, you can't take it with you. And he adds a stunning qualification. By telling us to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, he gives us a breathtaking corollary. You can't take it with you. This is awesome. But you can send it ahead. You can. Lori Davis is a woman who's on our staff here at Grace at our campus. She's, she's awesome. She also happens to be a very talented writer and she contributes to different Christian publications. She actually wrote this. I thought this was awesome. She said, we live in this time and in this place with great stewardship responsibilities before us, opportunities to glorify God with all we have. God doesn't bless us simply to promote our ease. We have a responsibility to turn worldly wealth into heavenly treasure. Look at this. It's the equivalent, it's the eternal equivalent of spinning straw into gold. We could take something temporary and we could turn it into something eternal. You guys, the Bible's gonna tell us this. The Bible's gonna say in Proverbs, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. Here's what the Bible's gonna say. When you and I take our temporary resources and we give those things to the poor, to the orphan, to the widow, to the needy, and the Bible says we're lending to God and he will pay us back, and he will reward us. There's eternal reward. The Bible's gonna say stuff like this in Luke 6. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. We can use our temporary stuff. We can invest them in relationships. We can invest them into uh, relationship-building eternal activities, and we can leverage that for something eternal. The Bible's gonna say in Luke 12 that we should be rich towards God. And what's all that mean? Here's what it means. It means that you and I can take our temporary money, our temporary stuff, and when we give to the poor, and when we give to the needy, and when we give to ministries, and when we give to missionaries, when we give to churches, and when we give to camps and conferences, things like momentum, which he was just talking about, that earthly temporary thing can be leveraged and turned into something that is eternal, something amazing that can't be taken from you. Now, I know some of you at this point in the message, you might be hearing all this, 
And you might be thinking to yourself, okay, this is really helpful and I, I hear what you're saying, but can you just answer this question for me? Can you just be straightforward? And can you just tell me? Can you just answer for me? How much should I invest in eternity now? So can you just tell me, like you said some stuff, the most biblical answer I know to this question. But I can't promise you're gonna like it. But I'll tell you what it is, okay? How much should I invest in eternity now? Here's the answer. How much reward do you want later? Some of you are like, I don't like that answer. But just, just do the math with me for a minute. If what Jesus is saying is true, this is the only answer to this question. Yes, let me put it this way. Let's just say for illustration's sake that you and I were able to get a time machine and we were able to go back to 1984. You guys remember 1984? Some of you guys weren't born in 1984. 1984, Ghostbusters was the uh, top movie at the box office. Tina Turner came out with What's Love Got to Do With It? What's Love Got to Do? So you're like, what's that got to do with the sermon? <laughs> Nothing. I just wanted to sing that. So 1984, you know what was happening in 1984 on Wall Street? Apple stock was nine cents for a single stock. Now, you guys know this. The reason you're gasping it's because on Friday, when the NASDAQ closed, it was $195 a share. Now, if you and I were standing in 1984 outside on Wall Street, and you asked me, handsome Bible man, how much should I, how much should I invest? 5%, 10%, you know what my answer would be? How much do you want later? That's the only answer to that question. That's the only answer to that question. So in light of this, well, I... Randy Alcorn, again, in his incredible book, he, here's what he said. I love this, you guys. He said, as a Christian, you have the ultimate insider trading tip. Earth's currency will become worthless when Christ returns or when you die or whichever comes first. And either event could happen at any time. Investment experts, known as market timers, read signs that the stock market is about to take a downward turn, and then they recommend switching funds immediately into more dependable vehicles, such as money markets, treasury bills, or, or certificates of deposit. Jesus functions here as the foremost market timer. He tells us to once and for all switch investment vehicles. He instructs us to transfer our funds from earth, which is volatile and ready to take a permanent dive, to heaven, which is totally dependable, insured by God himself, and is coming soon to forever place earth's economy. Now look what he says next. I love what he says. He says, Christ's financial forecast uh, uh, for earth is bleak, but he's unreservedly bullish I love that. Buy, 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 buy about investing in heaven where every market indicator is eternally positive. So in light of this principle, what would be a practical step? Well, I think yes, the practical step is simply this. I think we should, those of us who follow Jesus, should simplify so that we can excel in giving. I think that we should actually seek out sometimes to simplify so that we can excel. You know, this is actually what Paul says. Second Corinthians since you excel in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in love, he's like, look, you guys are growing in all these other areas of your life and your faith. He says, see to it that you also excel in giving. In giving, you should excel in this. Can I, can I just tell you from my experience, every, every pastor has a different experience, but can I just tell you in my, in my experience, I've actually found that most genuine followers of Jesus, in my experience, they actually really wanna give. 
I found that, that most Christians are the most generous people I've ever met. What I have found, though, is that for a lot of Christians, the reason that they can't give more is not because they're stingy. It's because they're strapped. It's because their money is already tied up in everything else. And I don't know why this is the case, but it seems like there's an unspoken rule in our society that as your income increases, so also your standard of, inc- your standard of living must also increase as well. But what I'm saying is, who said that? Who made that rule? And is it possible that maybe I could say, you know what, I'm actually purposefully not going to increase my standard of living so that I could excel in something like generosity. J.D. Greer, love what he said, Christians who worship God, not money, prefer to live sufficiently and give extravagantly rather than vice versa. I think sometimes what happens is we choose to live extravagantly and give sufficiently. But I think if the gospel gets a hold of our heart, something different happens. This leads us to principle number seven. The last one, and I promise this is it. The last last one is maybe the most important. And that's this, that the grace of Jesus Christ motivates generosity. It's the grace of Jesus that motivates it all. Um, Can I just address the potential elephant that's in the room? And I think it's this. I think that whenever you hear that the pastor's gonna be talking about money, whenever we have conversations about money in church, I think sometimes for some of us, we just get really tense. It just causes us to get tense. I gotta admit to you, when I first started in ministry, I hated talking about money. I hated it because it just felt, I was like, there's so much baggage about money in the church. I'm like, people are gonna be questioning my motives. I just don't, but I can, can I tell you, the, more, the longer I've been a pastor, I actually enjoy it more and more and more because I know we're talking about our faith. But I know for some, it makes us really uncomfortable. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But maybe for you, the reason you're uncomfortable is because the only emotion that you have ever felt associated with this topic is guilt. And maybe for you, you've just been you're like, oh, it's coming. I know, he's talking about money. So the end of the message, there's gonna be a guilt trip and there's gonna be a sales pitch. And he's gonna talk about, and there's this new giving initiative and you can give today. And I'm just gonna, I just wanna just ease your conscience. It's not coming. Okay, there's none of that. None of that's happening today. So just relax for a minute. But why is it that sometimes we feel that way? Because for some of us, the only emotion we have attached to this topic is guilt. And I think that it's important that you see what the scripture says. Here's what the Bible's gonna say. 2 Corinthians 9, each one of you should give what you've decided in your heart. How much should I give? Decide in your heart. Talk to the Lord about it. Talk to your father. He's the owner of it all. But look at this. But when you give, not reluctantly or not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful. These are two powerful words, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. Let me explain those words to you. The word reluctantly, how cool is this? It's the word lupe, which means pain of mind or spirit, grief, sorrow, and affliction. So he says, when you give, it shouldn't be like whenever you write the check, you're like having a funeral service for your money. It's like, <laughs> okay, I'll give. Like, not that. He says, don't do that and don't give, he says, out of compulsion. It's this word, which means out of necessity, constraint, pressure of any kind, custom, duty, etc. Don't give that way. He says, but when you do give, you should give how? He says, here it is, cheerfully. And I love this. I love this. Do you guys know that the word for cheerful is actually the word hilarious, which is where we get our English word? Hilarious. Hilarious. So what's that mean? It's like when you give, it should be like, you're writing a check and you're like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe something like that. I don't but it should be joyful. It should be, now, why would any lunatic give that way? Why does God love a cheerful giver? Can I tell you why God loves a cheerful giver? Because God is a cheerful giver. 
Because God is a cheerful giver. In the very same context of this passage, just verses before this, Paul says, see to it that you excel in the grace of giving. Now look at this. I'm not commanding you. This isn't a law. I'm not giving you a law. He says, because you know the grace. Oh, it's grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. For though he was rich, for our sake, he made himself poor. What's it mean when Paul says that Jesus was rich and he made himself poor? Here's what it means. You and I, every single one of us, are in a condition in which we are spiritually impoverished. We do not have the resources to pay for our own forgiveness, to pay for our own redemption. We cannot pay for our own salvation. We're estranged from God, but Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who was at the right hand of the Father, emptied himself of his luxuries to come and to pay for us what we could not pay for ourselves. He purchased our redemption and what was his became ours. And so his righteousness is now imparted and is credited to us, to our account. And, And what's true about him that he's the son of God is now true about us. Our standing is that we are now children of God. He took his riches and he emptied himself out that we who were poor might become rich. You guys, it's only when we start to do the math on that that it, the wellspring of the gospel starts to, starts to bubble inside of us generosity. Generosity is the result. You guys, when I, when I was reading this passage, I can't help but think of my experience, my experience in college. And um, I'll invite the band to come up. And I just want to tell you this last story and then I promise we're done. Thank you guys for your patience. But... Um, when I went to, some of you guys know me well enough to know that when I went to a college, I've told you before, I went to a Bible college in Chicago. And um, to be honest with you, the Bible college I went to was exceptional. I loved, I loved my experience there. I got a phenomenal education. But the way that this Bible college was set up is unique to anything I've ever seen before. So the way it was set up is every student who was enrolled at this school, every student, their tuition was entirely paid for, entirely paid for by the generosity of the alumni who came before and by the generosity of people who gave to the, to, the, to the school. And so I had to pay room and board, but outside of that, my tuition was entirely covered. Now, the reason they do that is because it's a Bible school and they wanna make sure that by the end of your education that the students that are there can go freely into ministry without having the burden of debt. So you guys, I was able to go through four years, get an incredible education. I walked out without a single penny of debt. I was so fortunate, so fortunate. And I remember people used to talk to me and they used to say, hey, didn't you go to that Bible school in Chicago that was tuition free? And I used to always correct them because it used to get on my nerves when they said that. And I would not, not because I thought that they were, you know, just because, it, because I knew what it meant. So I would say to them, no, it wasn't tuition free. It was tuition paid. Because somebody paid. I never wanted to forget that somebody paid. Now, let me just tell you, like a lot of you guys, if you went to college, I still get letters all the time from my school. They send me letters all the time. But I never get a bill. I don't owe them anything. There's no, I never, there's nothing, I don't, legally, I don't owe them a thing. But I always get a letter from them. And usually at the end of that letter, they're asking and they're appealing for generosity. They're asking for money. And can I tell you guys that for the past 20 years, when I get those letters, I will, I will, pray and talk to my wife. And then I so joyfully, I'll get out my checkbook. And when I write a check to to the school that I went to, can I just tell you guys what's going on in my heart? I'll tell you what's going on in my heart. I am cheerful. I am so cheerful. 
And I think back to, man, I'm so thankful someone did that for me. And I've told my wife, I said, I hope in my lifetime I can pay four, five, six times what was gifted to me so that I could pass it on to someone. I am so grateful. Now, I want you to compare that experience. Some of you right now have student loans. Some of you still have student loans. And you also get a letter in the mail. But it is legally binding. It's a bill. And my guess is that when you write that check to that organization, that what's happening in your heart is that there's nothing hilarious about it. There's nothing joyful. My guess is for you, when you write that check, it's with pain of mind and spirit, with grief, sorrow, affliction, and with much profanity. (laughs) That's my guess. Now, why is that? You guys, here's why. That, listen to me, that's the difference between law and grace. Grace, grace transforms your heart. So practically speaking, what do you and I do in light of this principle? Here's what it is. We embrace the grace of Jesus Christ. We allow it to transform us. Some of us who follow Christ, we gotta come back to his grace over and over again. Some of you today who don't follow Jesus, you need to see that that is on offer for you today. Listen, our salvation, our salvation, you guys, is not free. It was not free, but it is paid. Jesus paid for it. And only when we see the generosity of Christ that that can move us in our hearts to become generous people. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we just wanna say thank you for your outrageous generosity. Thank you that you're a cheerful giver. Thank you, God, that you love us enough that you would not only entrust us with what belongs to you, but that you would also guide us by giving us your word to know how to live a life where you are truly over the money that you've given to us, God. So I ask you, God, that in these moments as we have a chance to worship and sing, that you would help us to reflect on just the great generosity of our King, which you've done for us, that you've paid it all. So God, thank you for each person in this room. We know that there's a multitude of circumstances that are represented here. So I just pray that we take these principles no matter where we are, and Lord, help us to know how to internalize and to put them into our own lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.